If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. Now, for the sake of those who are new or who are watching us online, as I just said, we have begun a study in what many consider to be the greatest book in the Bible, the book of Romans. Paul gives us the theme of the book in the very first sentence when he talks about the gospel of God. Gospel means good news. And so, to put it simply, the book of Romans answers the question, what is the good news of God that allows a person to be made right with him and go to heaven? Now, he talks about other things once you are saved, how to live then for the Lord. But Paul always orders his epistles where he puts doctrine first and then duty. Because learning always precedes living. You can't live the life God wants you to live until you first know what God has made you to be in Christ. So Paul will take the first eight chapters of this epistle and he will lay out doctrine. And then he will get very practical starting in chapter 9 to the end, through the end of the book. But as we have said numerous times, guys, uh, Paul's introduction to Romans is the longest by far of any of his other epistles. And he packs it full of theology, uh, which we have been trying to take slowly to dig out these things. Um, he just loads this introduction with this theology. So we've been trying to take our time going through it. Let's back up and start with just read verse 1 again. Uh, which says, Paul, a bond servant, actually bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him... We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now we got down last week as far as verse 5, so verse 6 uh, is really where we're going to start. Uh, but first of all, who are the called that Paul is referring to in verse 6? Well, we don't have to guess. He actually tells us in verse 7, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. The words to be in verse 7 are in italics because they don't appear in the original Greek text. Thus the verse should read, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Most people have the idea that saints were a special people in religious history, as the Roman Catholic Church, which I grew up in, teaches. The Roman Catholic Church, and there's no doubt other um, churches that teach this as well, but the Roman Catholic Church bestows sainthood on those who were especially holy and pious during the course of their lives, those who did an exceptional amount of good works here on the earth. I think of Mother Teresa. She was canonized by the Catholic Church in September, uh, on September the 4th, 2016. So she was made a saint. But the Bible teaches that all children of God are called saints. You don't have to turn to these. I'll just read them off real quick. Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the believers. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. All Christians living there. Here's one from Romans chapter 8, verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints, that would be all believers in Jesus, according to the will of God. Guys, we are not called saints because we are saintly, whatever that means, and super pious. We are called saints because, listen, that is the new title God has given us as the redeemed of the Lord. 
He said, what was the old title we used to bear? Sinner. The new title is saint. And really, that new title is more of a description of what God has done rather than what we do. The Greek word for saint is hagias, not hagendas, hagias. Some of you are always thinking of food. Uh, the Greek word is uh, hagias, which means set apart, set apart. The idea being that the moment we received Jesus as our Savior, we were set apart from the world of fallen sinners and placed into the family of God as his dear children. We are set apart ones. We are saints, is the idea. Biblically, there are only two categories of people in the world, believers and unbelievers, saints and ain'ts. You're either a saint or an ain't. You know, there's other ways to describe it. Sheep and the goats, uh, you know, uh, the redeemed and the unredeemed. But I like that. Saints and ain'ts. That's really how the Bible divides the whole world. Okay. Um, therefore, listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, I don't care who you are, how long you've been saved, if you are a genuine believer of Jesus Christ, you are a saint. I like what one author said. He said, and I quote, a little boy attended a church that had beautiful stained glass windows depicting St. Paul, St. Peter, and St. John. One day when asked uh, in his Sunday school class, what are saints? He answered, they are people who the light shines through. The author said, good answer. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that we as believers in Jesus Christ are the called? And guys, remember what I just said, there's a lot of theology in these first few verses. And last week we camped on the idea of obedience, repentance, uh, as being an important element in salvation and so on. Um, tonight I'd like to camp on this idea of what Paul meant when he says that we as believers in Jesus Christ are the called, the called. He's going to elaborate on um, this theological concept or doctrine more in chapter 8, uh, but for our study tonight, we'll just peek ahead, get a little peek. All right, turn to Romans 8 quickly. Romans 8, verses 29 to 30. You all know it. Talking about believers, all believers go through this process. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So our salvation started in eternity past. Long before the earth was ever made, God knew us. And he chose us. We're going to talk a lot about that tonight. And at one point, eternity intersected with time. What do I mean? Well, at one point, we were born. God had been working. And God called us. Now, we didn't know God called us. We didn't hear a voice. We just knew at one point, we, we really wanted to know God. We were becoming very interested in God and this whole Christian thing, and the Bible, and so on. Now, we didn't know at the time that that was God calling us. And he was calling our hearts, and our hearts started to uh, respond. And at one point, we received Christ, and at that moment, we were justified. In other words, saved. And those who are justified will someday be glorified. Nobody falls through the cracks. Nobody gets saved but doesn't be glorified. I believe if you are truly saved, and God knows the heart, the firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. God knows the heart. And if you're truly born again, I believe you are saved forever. Backslide you might, perish you won't. And anyone who takes that idea and wants to run with it into sin, because after all, I'm saved by grace, to me, I question the validity of their whole salvation. 
I believe that doctrine with all my heart. Once saved, always saved. That doesn't want to. That doesn't cause me to want to sin more. It causes me to want to sin less, because He's so good to me. It's like He said to me the day I got saved, Phil. I want you to know I'm in this for the long haul with you. I knew every sin you were ever going to commit, and I still wanted you to be my son. And when I gave my heart to Christ, He adopted me to the family, and I know He will never leave me nor forsake me. And that doesn't make me want to sin more. It makes me want to sin less because he's so good. He's so good. Now, here's something important we need to understand. And this is kind of setting up tonight's study, which we won't get far in Romans, but this is so important. It lays the groundwork for the entire epistle, okay? Here's something important we need to understand. Everyone who winds up getting saved has been called, but not everyone who is called winds up getting saved. I'm going to elaborate on that. Let me say it again. Everyone who winds up getting saved has been called. But not everyone who is called winds up getting saved. And I'm going to explain that. Remember what Jesus said twice in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Many are called, but what? You are chosen. And the idea behind chosen is chosen for eternal life, chosen for salvation. Turn to Ephesians 1, and keep your finger there, because we're going to come back to it. Ephesians 1, I just want to key in on verse 4, because Paul talks about this, okay? The idea behind chosen is chosen for eternal life, chosen for salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, talking about how we were chosen by the Father, well, he, Ephesians 1, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. Those are the three main points Paul brings out. But Paul said in verse 4, just as he chose us, for eternal life is the idea, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Let me just stop there. So Paul tells, tells us that we were chosen for eternal life in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Now, guys, the $64,000 theological question is this. On what basis did God choose us for eternal life? Paul says it here, and it's spoken of throughout the New Testament, right? That we were chosen for eternal life in Christ. Even before the world was created, God knew us and chose us, right? The question is, on what basis did God choose us for eternal life? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that God chose or elected us. Same thing. In fact, same Greek word. Okay. Ephesians 1.4. Chose. First uh, Peter uh, 1.2. Elected. Same Greek word. Same idea. But Peter tells us that God chose or elected us to salvation according to his foreknowledge. I'm going to throw around a lot of theological terms. I, I really don't want to um, make this so hard that you know, it's, it's too hard to grasp. I, I'm trying to keep it where we're not going to water down these things but not get so deep. It's like, I, I don't understand this. And I may fall short of that, but you can always talk to me afterward. But the Greek word for foreknowledge, Peter says that we were elected according to the foreknowledge of God. The Greek word for foreknowledge is, uh, is a prognosin, prognosin, which means knowledge known in advance. We get our word pro, uh, prognosticator from that Greek word. Somebody that predicts the future. Well, a lot of char charlatans will tell you they can predict the future, but God knows the future. All right? And he has revealed it in his word. 27% of the Bible contains prophecy. Because God said, I'm going to tell you things before they happen, that when they come to pass, you will know that I'm God and this is my word, because nobody knows the end from the beginning. Nobody can tell you the future and be right every single time. If any prophet speaks in my name and says one thing that doesn't come to pass, some future prophecy, they're a false prophet, Old Testament, stone them. We don't, they look down on that, the New Testament period. We're not going to stone anybody. But, uh, you know what I'm saying? We have to be on guard for false teachers, false prophets. God doesn't guess what's coming. He knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning. Now, those who are Calvinists, I'm going to pick on the Calvinists tonight. 
Uh, I love them. A lot of wonderful brothers and sisters are Calvinists. A lot of the guys I read in my commentaries, like Spurgeon and others, Arthur W. Pink, many others were Calvinists. And I, I, I love them. I respect them. I have gotten a lot out of their wisdom as they have walked with the Lord. But I don't agree with them on everything. And so I'm going to, it sounds like I'm going to be picking on them tonight. I'm just going to be pointing out where I differ. You might differ with me. That's fine. But I'm going to lay it out to you, right? Those who are Calvinists say that this Greek word translated foreknowledge. We were saved by the foreknowledge of God, according to the foreknowledge of God. The uh, Calvinists say that this Greek word translated foreknowledge actually means, listen, foreordination. Foreordination. In other words, God only knows the future because he has foreordained the future. He knows the future because he has predetermined the future. In other words, he determined what the future was going to be in advance. Now, I have to stop here because, again, we're talking about God. He is so far above us. Uh, it's no wonder that we are confused on different points, myself included. We have different ways of interpreting things. I do believe God uh, has orchestrated what's coming in the future. I mean, Jesus was going to be born. He was. He was going to die on that cross. He did. He's coming, ab coming back again someday, we think, soon to establish his kingdom. That's a given. That's an absolute. We know how the future of mankind is going to unfold. When Jesus returns, he's going to bring the kingdom. Eventually, heaven and earth are going to be destroyed at the end of the thousand years, recreated where we move from time into eternity. Those are all th things written in stone. We know that. It's how we get from point A to point B is where we differ. And what do I mean? Calvinists believe that God programmed us as robots, pretty much. We don't have a free will. God programmed us, and now he pushes the buttons, and we do and say and think the way he wants us to. We don't have a free will, fallen man. Uh, it, 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 again, it's all like God just pushing the buttons, and we have uh, one very well-known Calvinist said, even when you're typing, at, he said in the typewriter, going back a few years, even when you make a mistake, God did that. It's crazy. With some people, it gets crazy. Every, that would mean every thought, no matter how evil, God put it there. Every action, no matter how heinous, a little kid getting raped and killed, God did that. It's horrible. It's horrible what some people ascribe to God uh, it's not true because they have this this rabid view of sovereignty that's so incredible that we can't do anything but what God has to push the buttons and make us do it. So they believe we're going to get the, from point A to point B because God's completely calling the shots. He's his, He's got absolute sovereignty over us. We have no free will. Everything we do, he presses the buttons and we have to do it. I, now, first of all, it doesn't take a big God to program robots. We can do You ever been down to Disney? Well, we, we've, for, we've canceled a trip to Disney World uh, this summer because of all the craziness going on down there. But I've been down there, and maybe you see, have seen what they, what they have done with, uh, with um, animatronics lately, these, these robots, right? I mean, they can program these things. They look almost human, all right? We can program machines. You don't have to be a big god to program robots. Man can do that. But you have to be a very big god, and this is how I feel, to take the free will of, what, 7, 8 billion people on planet Earth and work it out where you put each person, knowing, God knowing, how they're going to act, what they're going to do of their own free will, in a given situation, plugging them in to various situations, allowing them to exercise their free will, even as God knew they would, and the end result is God's plan is fulfilled. Judas was the one of the examples of that. He was no fall guy. Uh, Jesus didn't force Judas to do anything. God knew what Judas was going to do. God told the Lord Jesus Christ to put him on his team to make him one of his apostles because God knew that given the opportunity, Judas was going to betray Christ. When he betrayed Christ, it was all according to God's plan. 
But Judas was not a fall guy. Judas was responsible because he exercised his own free will in doing what he did in uh, betraying Christ and so on. So this is a complicated subject, all right? But I want to just say that there are those who believe that God pretty much created robots, programmed us to do certain things, and so on and so forth, and that he even did this with those who would be saved. That's where we want to bring it. You see, in Calvinist theology, it wasn't that God simply knew in advance. That's foreknowledge. Those who would get saved and those who would not. They believe he predetermined the destinies of those who would be saved and those who would not. In other words, he predestined some to be saved and the rest to be damned without them choosing for, those, for themselves where they wanted to spend eternity. In Calvinist theology, fallen man has no free will. We'll talk about that more in a second. All right. Let me say this, because you have non-Calvinists who react so strongly to some of these doctrines, they want to go to the other extreme and say that things like predestination, they're not biblical or they're evil. Look, predestination is a biblical doctrine. Look at Ephesians once again, verse 1. This time we'll read verses 4 and 5. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, listen, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. That's a very important statement. God predestined us who were going to be saved to be his children. He didn't predestine others that they would never be his kids because he wouldn't allow it. We'll talk about that more in a second. But predestination is a biblical doctrine. The word predestination comes from a Greek word that means to predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. Or in other words, to predetermine those who would be adopted into his family as his children and those who wouldn't be. The strict definition isn't hard to understand. Okay, we just mentioned it, predestination. To predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. The strict definition isn't hard to understand. The problem, the problem comes when we try to figure out, listen, upon what basis does God predetermine uh, someone's destiny in heaven? Whether or not they're going to be there. Whether or not they're going to be in heaven with him for, for eternity. Those who will, those who won't. On what basis does he decide this? Is their destiny based entirely upon God's sovereign will? In other words, based entirely on God's sovereignty? Or in other words, based entirely on God's will? Or is it based on man's free will? That's the argument. That's the running debate. What is it? God's sovereign will, and we have no choice. We have no free will in the matter. Or do we have a, a part? Do we choose to receive or reject Christ? Extreme or hyper-Calvinists believe that in eternity past, God chose some to be predestined to eternal life in heaven, and the others he predestined to spend eternity in hell. It's called the doctrine of reprobation. The Calvinist doctrine of reprobation. And guys, all of this was decided before any of us were ever born, before we were ever born, and without any free will on our part to choose where we wanted to spend eternity. I mean, we weren't even alive. Man wasn't even created yet. The earth wasn't even created, and these things were already decided by God. In other words, we, they believe, Calvinists, that we are nothing but puppets, and God is the puppet master. He makes us behave in certain ways and causes some to believe in and others not to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and we have no choice in the matter. Now, guys, I thoroughly reject the Calvinist definition of predestination. But before I give you my interpretation of predestination, let me talk for a moment more about the Calvinist doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation. First of all, 
With regard to the doctrine of reprobation, not all Calvinists hold to it. Extreme or hyper-Calvinists do. God created some for heaven. He created others for hell, and that's just the way it is. There's no free will. You don't get to choose. This is what God has chosen. His sovereignty is absolute. Uh, Hyper-Calvinists uh, or extreme Calvinists believe that. However, you have moderate Calvinists, moderate Calvinists, and they teach that although God did elect and predestine some to salvation before the foundation of the world simply uh, on the basis of his sovereign will, that doesn't mean, uh, they claim, that it doesn't mean that he predestined others to hell. Yes, he predestined some to heaven, but he didn't predestine others to hell. Now, folks, this is trying to have it both ways. Let me explain why. It is their attempt to uphold God's sovereignty in saving people, but not holding him responsible for choosing to send the rest of fallen humanity to hell forever apart from any choice on their part. You see, in Calvinist theology, a fallen person is so dead in trespass, an unsaved person, fallen unsaved person, is so dead in trespasses and sins that they can't believe on their own. You may not know this. Some of you no doubt do. Calvinists view the unsaved as being so dead in trespasses and sins they don't have the capacity to believe. And here's what they'll tell you. How can a corpse believe? This one line of thinking has brought a lot of people into Calvinism. It sounds so ironclad. How can a corpse believe? You ever seen a corpse in a funeral home believe anything? God has to, they say, raise them from their spiritual deadness first before they can believe and be saved. And so Calvinism teaches that God has to first regenerate a person. Now, hang on to that. I'm going to come back to it. But they believe that God has to first regenerate a person, in other words, make them alive spiritually and give them the ability to believe. Because they can't do it on their own. They're dead. He has to regenerate them. In other words, make them alive spiritually and give to them the ability before they can believe and be saved. The problem is he only does this for the elect. The elect. Let, let me use a flawed analogy of this. If God commanded that for a person to be saved, they had to fly, but then only gave a few people, the elect, wings to fly, well, wouldn't that be tantamount to condemning or reprobating, if you will, uh, the others to hell without, without any hope of ever being saved? Again, if God were to say, look, to get into heaven you have to fly, but I'm only going to give a few people, those I've chosen in eternity past, wings to fly, the rest, you're on your own, isn't that tantamount to, you know, reprobating them to hell forever because they can't fly by nature god's not giving them wings so they're doomed to spend eternity in hell now at this point with regard to my dumb illustration calvinists would be prone to respond oh but god isn't keeping the wingless from flying they can fly if they want to so their damnation is their fault. Guys, that is so disingenuous. I'm not even sure how to even take it seriously. <laughs> you have to fly to get to heaven. I don't have wings, so God's got to give me the wings. But he's only going to give a small group called the elect wings to fly. The others are on their own. And to say, well, you know, they could fly if they want to. I mean, God's not stopping them from flying. And so their damnation is their fault. That's about as dumb as it gets. In Calvinist theology, a person has to be saved. This is, this is crazy. First time I read this, I thought, this is nuts. Now, they don't put it like this, but this is exactly what they're teaching. In Calvinist theology, a person has to be saved before they can get saved. What do you mean? Well, they have to be regenerated. Now, Calvinists 
make regeneration and salvation two separate acts. The Bible says if you're regenerated, you're saved. Regeneration and salvation are really synonymous terms for the most part. But in Calvinist theology, you can't believe because you're dead in trespasses and sins. So God's got to regenerate you. When does that happen? Well, depending on the Calvinist group, it happens at water baptism for a lot of these Calvinists. Their kids are baptized, and God regenerates them at that moment. And now they have the ability to believe once they get older. It's not the same with all Calvinists, but I'm just throwing out some of the general stuff. So to make it as simple as possible, in Calvinists believe you have to get saved before you have to get saved before you can be saved. And that's just crazy. This is when your doctrine um, contradicts the Bible, but you have to shoehorn it in there and just stuff it in so that it fits. There it is, I got that square peg in a round hole. Isn't that great? No, it's not great. Now, here's where our illustration of God saying to be saved a person has to fly, but then only it then only um, gives wings to the elect so that they can fly, but says, I'm not stopping the rest. You want to fly? Go ahead. Moderate Calvinists will tell you that even though God is, has to regenerate people, the elect, before they can be saved, in other words, give them the ability the ability to believe first, then they can believe on Christ and be saved. Um, he isn't keeping others, the non-elect, from believing so that their fault, it's their fault they go to hell. This is the argument. I really have never figured it out. How could you believe that? You claim that a person has to believe in Christ to be saved. I get that. That's what I believe. But you believe people are so dead in trespasses and sins they can't believe on their own. God has to regenerate them, which means give them the ability spiritually to be able to believe, and then they can exercise that faith and get saved. But for the rest of humanity, you're saying, uh, but you know, but God isn't stopping the non-elect from believing. If they want to, it's up to them. That is so ridiculous, because God is withholding the ability for them to believe. How can they believe if God doesn't give them the ability to believe according to Calvinism? And then say, well, if they don't believe it's their fault, that they go to hell. Listen, let, let's put all that aside, okay? You can chew on that at your leisure. Let, let's put all that aside and let's come at this issue from a slightly different direction. If God can and does force the elect to be saved, then why does he not just force everyone to be saved? Right? The elect have to be forced to be saved. Now, you know, it, it goes by different names, irresistible grace and so on and so forth. But the elect are chosen by God to be saved. And that's all there is to it. So if God forces some, the elect, to be saved, why doesn't he just force every unbeliever to be saved? I mean, how can God, who is all love, the theologians call it omnibenevolence, how is an all-loving God um, who could save all, I guess, according to Calvinism, but who chooses rather to only save a few, how does that even harmonize with his nature is a God of love. I've used this analogy before. Let me say, give it to you again. Imagine that you were walking down a country road in the summertime. And you saw a pond about 100 yards from the road. And you saw five little boys in that pond. At first it looks like they were swimming, having a good time. But as you looked a little closer, you realized they weren't uh, talking, you know, and, 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 and having fun. They were crying out for help. They were not swimming. They were drowning. You ran over there. And let's say for the sake of argument, you could save all five little boys. But you chose only to save one and let the other four drown. Do you think people would call you a hero or a heartless villain? Calvinism turns God into a heartless villain. 
a God who could save all of drowning humanity, those drowning in sin and on their way to hell, but instead chooses only to save a small number of sinners called the elect. Now, I've heard when, when I have confronted Calvinists with this, God forces some to be saved, called the elect. Why did he just force everyone to be saved? Why does anyone go to hell? He's a God of love, right? He's all loving. I've heard them say two things in response to this. First of all, well, the deep things belong to God. And that's the way they get around us. They don't have an answer. It defies logic. So it's like, well, you know, we can't know the deep things of God. We'll find this out someday. Well, I don't think it's that I don't think it's that difficult. Either God is all loving or he's not. Right? I mean, you know, you're trying to defer, you're trying to let's change the subject kind of a approach. But I've also heard others say, when you confront them with this, well, if God can save some by force, why does he save everyone by force? I've heard some say, well, God is under no obligation to save anyone. Is it that's an answer? And of course, that's true, but it misses the point. I mean, of course, God is under no obligation to do anything for any of us, including and especially to save any fallen sinners. That's a given. But listen, if he chooses by force to save sinners at all, then he must choose to save all sinners, or else he can't be an all-loving God. Now, at this point, many Calvinists would respond, that's right. God only loves, he's only all-loving to the elect, and the rest of people he hates. Remember what the Bible says? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And that's what they parade out to tell you, well, you got me. But see, that's the problem is God is not all loving to all people. He's only all loving to the elect. He only loves them, the rest of fallen humanity, not chosen by him before the foundation of the world. He hates. Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. You can look in Genesis where Jacob and Esau appear. Remember twins? Okay. Um, and you can look at, at in Genesis till your eyeballs fall out. You will never see that statement in Genesis with regard to God calling the man Jacob and the man Esau, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That verse does not appear in the Bible until a thousand years later in the book of Malachi. And the idea or the reference is the nation of Jacob I have loved and the nation of Esau I have hated. But even then, remember what Jesus said in uh, Luke 14, verse 26. If you don't hate your mother and your father and your sisters and your brothers and even your own life also, you are not worthy to follow me, right? Was he saying that he, we are to, to literally hate our mothers and fathers? Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father. This is something in the Jewish um, culture that what, what the rabbis used to teach, if your love for God, if your love for God is not so strong that every other relationship by comparison seems like hate, then you don't love God as much as you should. He's not actually saying to hate your parents or hate your siblings or uh, hate, even hate your own life. But your love for God has to be so strong, so supreme, that every other relationship pales by comparison so that it even looks like hate compared to your love for God because that is so incredible. So even when God says, Jacob I have loved and the nation of Esau I have hated, he didn't hate the Edomites, which are modern Jordan, by the way. God loves all people and desires for all men and women to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I see you think, well, okay then, Phil, how do you, <laughs> all wise one, how do you explain predestination? Well, I'm going to tell you what I believe the Bible teaches. Again, um, I could be wrong. Remember the word predestination comes from a Greek word that literally means to predetermine or plan beforehand a person's destiny. 
The strict definition, as I said a few moments ago, is not hard to understand. The problem comes when we try to figure out upon what basis does God predetermine someone's destiny. And once again, Peter said that we were elected, predestined, and predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. We were elected according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge is a Greek word that means, I'm just reviewing, is a Greek word that means knowledge known in advance. Here's what I believe the Bible teaches about predestination. And before you throw stuff at me, hear me out. All right? I explain it this way, that God in eternity past looked down into the future through his foreknowledge and knew everyone who, listen, through his grace, it's all grace, by grace you have been saved, right? That God knew, through his grace, who would respond in faith to his offer of salvation when the gospel was presented to them, maybe not in the first try, but eventually. And therefore, based on that foreknowledge, he elected, chose us to be his children and predetermined our destiny, the definition of predestination, that we would spend eternity with him in heaven. Let me say it again. God knew us before we were ever made. And God has the ability to look down because of his foreknowledge. Knowledge in advance. He looked down through the centuries and knew everybody who would respond positively to the gospel, all those who would receive Christ. And he chose them to be his children and to live with him forever in his kingdom. That we would spend eternity with him in heaven. Guys, this is important. Predestination only applies to heaven and to those who receive Jesus as their Savior. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught that God predestines anyone to hell. If they do wind up going to hell, it is because of their refusal to believe in and receive Jesus as their Savior. It's their fault. They could be saved. They chose not to be saved. Now, our Calvinist brothers and sisters would immediately jump all over that interpretation of, of predestination by saying, if God chose us based on us choosing Jesus, that would make God the responder and not the initiator of salvation. So, Phil, if you're saying God looked into the future and saw, oh, yeah, Phil, oh, that's what he's going to do. He's going to receive Jesus. So I'm going to choose him. Now you got God as the responder and not the initiator of salvation. This, they say, would violate what Jesus himself clearly said on the subject, John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, listen, unless the Father draws him or her. And guys, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. God is the initiator of salvation. Jesus said it. That he is the good shepherd that goes out looking for the lost sheep. They don't go looking for him. People say, I found Jesus. He didn't find Jesus. He found you. He wasn't lost. You were. <laughs> I found Jesus. No, he didn't. He was out looking for you. He was calling you. Oh, I feel like I need to go back to church. I, gotta, I want to read the Bible. That was God calling you, right? God initiates salvation, not any fallen sinner. Understand, I totally agree with that. In fact, Paul is going to tell us in Romans 3, if you want to turn there real quick, Romans 3, we'll just read verses 10 through 12, where Paul said in the verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, listen, there is no one who seeks God. Fallen sinners don't seek God. They may go to church, they may take communion, they may light candles and pray rosaries. That's seeking religion. That is not seeking God. Verse 12. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. This is talking about fallen mankind. So as Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him or her. Who then does God draw? 
All right, nobody can get saved. Nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. Well, who is the Father drawing? I'm just trying to go down the line where, you know, Calvinists um, and others may disagree with the whole process of salvation. All right, I, I can see nobody comes to Christ unless the Father draws them. Who's the Father drawing? Listen, the difference between Calvinists and non-Calvinists like me is that Calvinists claim that God only draws a small portion of fallen humanity called the elect to Christ, those he has chosen to save in eternity past, apart from any free will on their part. So God only draws the elect. Whereas I believe, as Jesus said in John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw, listen, all men and women to myself. Listen, just because God draws a person to Jesus, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Just because God draws a person to Jesus, listen, doesn't mean they have to be saved. I believe the Bible teaches that they can resist the grace of God that is drawing them to Jesus. I don't believe in the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace, which says if God's chosen you, he is going to pull you into the kingdom, and basically you're going to get saved. You can't resist God's grace. It's irresistible, they say. I believe the Bible teaches that God is calling and drawing all men and women to be saved. But that his grace to be saved isn't forced on anyone. It can be resisted and ultimately it can be rejected. Uh, we're running out of time, so I'm going to read you two verses quickly. You can write down the references. Can God's grace, can God's will be resisted? Calvinists say no. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And therefore judgment was going to come. He wanted to protect them from judgment. That's why he came, to offer salvation. But they refused, they resisted, the will of God. And then Acts 7.51, Stephen said to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Man can resist the grace of God. God is calling, God is extending his arms to the fallen, saying, come to me, I love you. My son died for you. I want to forgive you your sins. I want you to be a member of my family forever. God is calling. But people refuse to come. And again, I believe God is calling all people to be saved. But God knew in eternity past those who would, who would uh, receive Jesus as their Savior and those who wouldn't of their own free will. And based on his foreknowledge, he chose those who would receive Jesus to be his children and predestine them, again, predetermined their destiny to spend eternity with him in heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said, many are called, but few are chosen. Turn to John 3 as we bring it to a close. The whole world has been called. If I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. For God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes, he never said only the elect. Whoever believes in him would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Many are called. Few are chosen because God knew those who would receive Christ and those who wouldn't, of their own free will. And those who would receive Christ even before they were created, God chose them to be his children. Look at John 3, and let's read verses 18 to 20. Jesus said, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who believes in the Christ, Jesus, is not condemned. 
But he who does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You find nothing in verses like this that indicate that unbelievers that were not chosen in eternity past have no chance of being saved. They are indicted because they refuse to come to Christ. Not because God has excluded them, because they weren't part of the elect. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, You see, the singular issue concerning predestination is neither intellectual nor theological, it's moral. Through his foreknowledge, God sees the person who wants to continue to walk in darkness and doesn't choose them for eternal life in heaven. So too, before the foundation of the world, he saw those who wanted to walk in light and chose them to be his sons and daughters and live with him in his kingdom forever, end quote. But once again, let's be crystal clear on this point. Just because God chooses some for heaven, the Bible never teaches he chooses others for hell. He knows they're going to go to hell, but not because he wants it or is forcing hell on them. In fact, the Bible says, and Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 41, that hell wasn't even made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. However, if a person wants to live their entire life in rebellion to the will of God, do their own thing, well, then like the very first rebel in the universe, Lucifer, they're going to follow him, the devil, all the way to the place where he will spend eternity, which is hell. And that's a tragedy because God never wanted that. Jesus came that we would not have to suffer in hell forever, but that we could have eternal life. Again, guys, and we're done. Let me just finish. Hell is where everyone goes who wants to live in sin and rebellion against the will of God for their lives and refuses to choose Jesus of, as their Savior, listen, of their own free will. And that is the ultimate tragedy because 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires for all men, all women, women to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, yet so many refuse to come to Jesus for salvation. Even though, and I'll just read these quickly, John 3.16, we just talked about it, for God so loved who? The world. Now, Calvinists say it's the world of the elect. I don't see that in my Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. Romans 10, verses 11 to 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes on Jesus will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the final invitation of the Bible, we just studied it a few weeks ago, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And the Spirit and the Bride say to humanity, Come, and let him who hears, come, and let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take or her take the water of life freely. Whoever desires. One writer tried to harmonize God's election with man's free will this way. He said, and I quote, On the door of heaven, from our side, it says, Who, whosoever will may enter. I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone chooses to enter by me, they will be saved and have everlasting life. Now, if a person enters that door, when they get on the other side of the door, heaven, as they look back on the other side of that door, they will find the words written, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. End quote. Hey, that's the best we can do. All right? So that's the best we can do. So, again, let me close with Romans 1, verses 5 and 6. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 
And so let me say it one more time. Everyone who winds up getting saved has been called, but not everyone who is called winds up getting saved. Remember the words of Paul, who said, Today, if you hear God calling to you, trying to get you to come to Jesus, don't harden your heart. You don't know how many other chances you're going to get to be saved. Your life could be over before the sun sets on any given day. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Behold, today is the day of salvation. If you hear God's voice calling to you, don't put it off. You may not get tomorrow. Yeah, I went to Sunday school as a kid. I know it's all true. I know Jesus is my Savior. I'm not done, though, you know, sowing my wild oats. You know, someday I'll, I'll get right with God. You may not get a someday. You may not even get the rest of today. That's why the Bible says when you hear His voice tugging at your heart, don't put it off, guys. Get on your knees immediately and receive Christ as your Savior. I am convinced a big part of the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth that goes on forever and ever in hell is because a lot of people that wind up in hell really did believe in Jesus. They went to Awanas, they went to Sunday school, Bible camp. They had head knowledge, and many of them, I think, fully intended to get their lives right with God as soon as they got done having their fun. And they wound up dying prematurely. If They died right on God's timetable. But many of them always thought they had more time. One of the biggest lies that has effectively kept many out of heaven from the devil is you have time. You've got time. Have some more fun. Enjoy yourself. You've got plenty of time to get right with God and be a Christian. Today is the day of salvation. The called. Don't ignore his voice if you hear him calling. Receive Christ now. Father, we thank you for your great love with you loved us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying in our place. And I want to pray for everyone, Lord, here tonight and watching online. If there's anyone watching, and I'm pretty certain there are, there are, if any are watching who have not prayed to receive you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior, Lord, please work in their heart right now. And Lord, right now as I just pray a simple prayer, I just pray you'd work in their hearts that they would repeat in their hearts just between you and, and you and them this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God who came down to this earth and eventually died on the cross for my sins. I believe, Lord Jesus, that three days later you rose from the dead bodily. I believe that you are coming back again to establish a kingdom that will never end. And Lord Jesus, I know you died for my sins. And right now I am asking you to come into my heart and be my master, my king. I'm asking you, Lord, to take charge of my life. And fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might live for you from this day forward with all my heart to bring you glory. No longer living for myself, selfishly, indulging my flesh. But right now, Lord, I lay my life at your feet and say, I, I now belong to you, Lord Jesus. Use me. Live your life through me, that I might bring you glory. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen.
If you prayed that prayer and you meant it with all your heart, you are now a child of God. You might not have felt anything. I didn't feel anything. But I did begin to notice almost immediately some of the things I had always done, I no longer wanted to do. Some of the vices, you know, stealing stuff from work. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Almost immediately, God said, you can't do that anymore. That doesn't honor me. And it wasn't like I had to really force myself not to go to the parties anymore, drink or take drugs or whatever. I just didn't want to anymore. It's crazy. That's when you know the Spirit of God has moved in and made you a new creation, giving you new attitudes, new desires. I never really I went to church before I got saved. I never really wanted to go to church. You know, I had to go to church before I was saved. Because that's what good people do. Now I get to go to church. Because I love the Lord. I never wanted to read the Bible before I got saved. I did right before I did get saved because God was working. I never wanted to read the Bible. Now I get to read the Bible. I, you know, just so many things that you know are different now. Look for these things. And if you don't see anything changing, any attitudes different, come on back so we can talk. Because a transformed life is the greatest evidence that Jesus Christ is really inside you now through his Holy Spirit. We'll talk more as we progress.